All right, so after that is a question. Not even just the topic, but a proper question. How much of Unknown Armies is solving mysteries or explaining the unnatural? Is the unnatural meant to be largely inexplicable, or is some of it supposed to be understood by the players? Um, I, I guess... Question. What do you mean by inexplicable? Like, we know where magic comes from, more or less. Um, obsession, and because approximately 300 or something ascended masters... But how much, like, if you're running an Unknown Armies campaign, how much is meant to be understood um, by the players? Like, there was a reason that the second edition book was, like, arranged in yes. four sections. Yeah, so arranged you... like a fucking being inducted into, like, a secret society. Yeah. But I like that. I mean, it's, a, it's why it's such a good book. I agree. Um, I agree. You go, you're going deeper and deeper, like, peeling back the layers of the onion. Um, this is an issue I've had a little bit where um, a lot of the unknown armies I do end up playing is with people who know the setting very well, um, and so we end up. I like, think you know, most. The, I think that's most of the unknown armies you're going to get end up playing <laughs> and running. Just no, especially I have if you're played, doing online. Yeah, sure. Uh, not necessarily. And I don't mean you specifically, Thompson. I just mean in general because this is a fairly niche game, and the fan base it does have is very dedicated. That's true, but you, whenever you get someone in, you do, you can find people online yeah. and offline who don't know much about the game, but have just heard it, um, like heard it's good, or don't know shit, but you can sell it to them and they're willing to yeah. play. Um, I found that with new players um, who don't know much, even like anything about role playing very much, um, if you're doing it in person, the corkboarding is. It creates an impression. People like the corkboarding because it's tangible yes, and it's cool. Yes. And I've also run into that, running for newbies. Yeah. Then people come in and see the corkboard and go, what the fuck is that? And then they're like, that's weird, but that's interesting. <laughs> I'm interested now because you have some, you've got something to show for it, you know? Um, so whether or not the unnatural is explicable and understood by players, um, I mean, it's not like an armies has like some big far-reaching magic system and metaphysics for like okay here's here it's not like mage right oh um, yeah, okay or even like D, which usually has a bunch of lore on how magic works even if it's not necessarily like reflected in the system so to speak mm. like i'd say you want it to be mysterious to an extent um I've run games in both ways the last campaign i ran one of the things that i felt less satisfied with how i run it was how I did have a tendency to just dump a bunch of lore at certain points. Mm. Mm. And I don't think that in any game that's very good. You want to have that sense of discovery in RPGs, sure. I think. So I think, is the unnatural meant to be uh, understood by players? I mean, we, I don't think we understand it per se. We just know like, hey, here's magic. Here's spell lists and shit. Here's mm. the list of possible adepts. But in sort of an in-universe way um i think it's dependent on two key things mm. one what level campaign are you running you're doing street level you're doing global you're doing cosmic right and that's more of like a in setting question and frankly i don't think you'd be seeing many newbie groups doing global or higher mm. to be honest but then the other thing is ask yourself how well do your players know the lore and the system and the setting, right? If you have put together a group that's a bunch of 
total fucking ponies, right? Don't not familiar mm. with the game in the slice. They're just running it because you're their buddy and they want to play a game. Lean a lot more into rumors. Give players the chance to discover the setting for themselves at the table. Last yeah. time I did a campaign like that, I just straight up said, "Hey, listen, if you don't want to read the fucking player core book, you don't have to." Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The system's pretty easy. We'll deal stuff as it comes up, uh, comes into it. But the other thing I said is, like, if you're interested in playing one of the more weird or occulty things, I suggest you do read the rule book. And I think that's an interesting dynamic if you have a more mixed group where you can be like, all right, you have some ponies in the group, and those are, like, mm. the players that don't know anything about the setting, to speak. Mm. And they're hearing a lot about it as, like, rumors and hearsay. And mm. then you have someone that doesn't know a lot about setting it because they've played the game before or they've read a lot of the books because they enjoy them. Mm. And then they can be, like, the more street-smart, experienced adepts mm. or uh, chargers mm. that can be like, well, you know, from what I remember, yada, yada, yada. And the important thing, I think, for those guys is you need to tell, like, listen, you can't look this shit up on your phone. If you're yeah. going to be doing this, you need to be operating entirely off of what you mm. just remember from reading these books like eight years ago. Well, there is there is a um, one thing I've been thinking about for a while because I, th- and I think Anonami's has enough material for it. Is yeah. like you could easily if you have some if you have some players who do know have played a bunch of Anonami's and know their setting pretty well, you can mix shit up yeah. pretty easily. Like you could be like, okay, you're starting off at low level. You don't know what magic is out there. I'm not going to use any of the magic from the book. I'm gonna like. I'm gonna dig deep into on, uh, on a natural phenomena website. Uh, find some like fan based, yep. f- fan made magic schools from like 2004, and these are the these are the magic schools. And I found some avatars. These are the avatars, and you have to find them yourself or encounter them or learn them. And that's perfectly legitimate. There's like because there's some cool stuff yep. out there. Um, and you can you don't have to use any there's an, there's enough stuff out there that um, you can just take and be like no there's no Alex Abel there's no sect of the naked goddess none of that none of that we're all, we're gonna use all this other stuff I'm gonna have like these guys that do satellite astrology instead like it, and then it changes the dynamic completely and it put uh, one of my favorite solutions for this sort of thing where it's like all right player a player knows a lot about the lore. And I don't really want that coming up during the game. And usually mm. this is just because, like, I'm not going to be including that aspect of the lore in the game. Mm. I just get... And they ask, like, oh, well, what's the Naked Goddess up to? What's Makatex up to around here? Yeah, yeah, I just say, you've never heard of them. <laughs> that works. That works. You know, they could be around in case I want to change my mind and want to bring them in later. Though, admittedly, they kind of, kind of suck for players because then they have to feign the, oh, my God, I've never heard of this thing. And, yeah, you know, sure. some people are fine with that. Some people not so much. Yeah, it depends on your players. I, I will say with new players, I think it's important to preserve that sense of discovery because it is a very magical experience just playing through unknown armies for the first time, not having read any of the books or fucking anything. Mm. And finding out what the fucking adept is, finding out what the fucking avatar is, finding out about some of these factions and learning what the invisible clergy is and all that stuff, right? Getting those sorts of notches in your natural meter outside of the game as you get them inside the game. It's yeah. like when you read Lord of the Rings for the first time, right? Sure. It's this wonderful feeling of discovering this unfamiliar world. 
Yeah. And you, but you can still include that sense of discovery in a game with experienced players. It's just going to be a bit more difficult because you're going to need to go further afield <laughs> in the material you're looking at or be more creative in the material you come up with to present, to keep up that constant feeling of novelty. Mm. Yeah, that's the big thing. You need to have that sense of novelty. And that novelty is kind of easy to maintain if you're dealing with a player that knows jack shit about this. You're dealing with experienced players, it's harder, but still doable. You've, en- you've entered the other space, and the other space is a great city called Metropolis. And yeah. there are... Uh, wait a minute, this is cult. Fuck. <laughs> kind of like what you brought up with stuff like natural phenomena. It's not like ritual magic, adept magic, and... Avatar magic are the only kinds of magic out there. Yeah. There's other magic sure. systems that you can totally bring in, and then there's that fun chance of discovery for those too. Yeah. When it comes to the question of how much is Anonami's solving mysteries or exploring the natu- unnatural, or explaining the unnatural, rather, um, yeah. when it comes to solving mysteries, I don't like solving mysteries to be the focus. I like it I, because I want the, like, I like it when. They're solving mysteries for a reason. There's an objective there. Yeah. Like when you've got your sleepers, you're going to end up solving mysteries because you're going out there being sleepers, like knocking bad wizards on the head. But like figuring shit out is going to be part of it, but it's not the end goal. I feel like it's like a lot of, there's a lot of influence from like Call of Cthulhu and other procedural games where it is more about like finding the mystery. And I think Unknown Armies, you can absolutely do that. Um, and it can do it well, but I think like it works better if the mysteries are like interwoven with specific ta- like objectives that the characters are going for, um, that they have a continual direction to go in, and then the mysteries become mm-hmm. uh, they enter in organically as they um, are figuring things out. Uh, I mean, you know, we've gone over this before several times. I don't need, feel the need to draw it too much, but, you know, you, you aren't as into Unknown Army's third edition, especially as an investigative game. I'm fine with it, but with the caveat that you need some sort of larger context. You can't just be investigating yeah. for its own sake. Its own sake. Yeah. Well, if you want to be investigating for its own sake, give me a reason. You need to have an excuse for fitting the sort, at least assuming you're using the objective superstructure. Mm. You need a reason they can fit the investigation format into the objective format. And my solution is always you're trying to convince some sort of authority figure. And each clue you get is a piece of evidence that may be more or less convincing. My issue with the whole like solving the mystery aspect of it combined with the objective system is that it doesn't map well onto it because, well, it does, but it's, the only way to map it on is if you like be like, okay, these are the milestones we need to get, or like, are some of the milestones secret from us? We can't know what these milestones are unless we reach them. Although some people run the game like that, you hit milestones. I think that's okay. You-, you can have the milestones just be these are the leads we know from the start, and then as always, if something else comes up that seems like a reasonable milestone, seems like a reasonable key lead clue or whatever, then you add that as a new. Milestone. And that's, well, we, I think we've got different from running the game already. Well, we've we've got sixty seven percent in our objective. Let's just roll it to solve the mystery. Well, yeah, it's at that point. It's not that you've solved the mystery. It's again, you're trying to convince someone else, right? That's where the authority figure but if, comes in. Yeah, and if but if yeah, that's fair enough. But if yeah. it was if the objective was to solve this mystery, that yeah, could be a no, that, that's the point where you need to tell the players like, no, the objective can't be solving a mystery. It needs to be 
convincing someone else that you've solved sure. a mystery. Yeah, and that's my issue. That was my only issue with, yeah. like, I don't know, it's a that's procedural fair. game. It's like, yeah. as an objective, solve the mystery. I don't yeah, know as an objective in and of itself, solve the mystery isn't very good. But there's very few cases in real life where just solving the mystery is enough. Yeah, no, it's about like it's what about for its close, own satisfaction. Closing the case, or you need to convince people. You need to convince your boss in the police department, or your case officer with the FBI, or the audience for your true crime podcast. That's right. Right? It's it's not enough just to be like we've solved this mystery to our satisfaction. At least, like, no, no, you need to convince the people you're beholden to. Yeah, and that sort of like, that fits with the objective system well because if you fail. If you roll on the objective early and you fail, then you're just like, well, no, this is not good enough. Go get out there and keep, go, keep, keep kicking stones until you get me something better than this. And say you're a group of teenagers wandering the countryside in a van solving mysteries. Well, the person you need to convince there is your talking dog, who he gets very angry when he's displeased. When he's displeased, he is, he is cruel and he is unforgiving. <laughs> you will be fed to the mystery machine. <laughs> We're trapped in the belly of this mystery machine. And the that machine is, is that is a fucking campaign pitch if I've ever heard of one. Um. So it's like Godspeed you Black Emperor meets Scooby Doo, right? The perfect combination. The perfect combination. Yeah, that's when Steven Spielberg tells me to get out of his house. That's right. He does that a lot. Um, but these are good questions and worth sort of like thinking about and uh, maybe coming back to these are things we, we've yeah, sort of touched on these before um the this question these questions were from arbor next one is i'd like to see a 33.3 fm book with the homebrew they've talked about especially the gatekeeper archetype as a security guard that one interested me yeah, we should. We we built up a lot of content debt over the years, haven't we, Thompson? <laughs> Look, I got. Yes, I want to. Oh, give me the time and the energy, please. Find it for me. Dude, um. fucking same, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there, buddy. Um, except I, I have even less of that than you do. Well, actually, no, that's a lie. Uh, my reserves of that are lower than you. Yours are. Yours are just very tapped for a number of very valid reasons, and they have been for a yes. while. If we ever set up a Patreon, the Patreon like pitch will be give Thompson money so he can show his wife why. So he can okay justify just so spending justify time on this. It. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's it. Doesn't have to be much. I mean, Ben has told us that uh, he loosely has a project in mind that's just yep. a source book on various things that have been inspired by episodes of the show. That would be I good. think the working title was Blame Frank and Thompson, <laughs> something to that effect. Once, once our names start entering the titles, um, I, I hope, I hope it comes out. Um, yeah. um, that's pretty. I, I, I I'm look afraid, forward to the, it. the other thing is we what we should probably stop doing is like thinking in terms of like, oh, we need to format this for statusphere and whatnot. There's some yeah. statusphere that's barely format. We can just throw it out. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Yeah. True. Affinity I like. He mentions the gatekeeper archetype. What else do we have? We have um, uh, Neodon, the intrinsic uh, Nauralchemy school. Um, what else did, did we have? Is like in terms of that we pitched at one point or another. I'm just. I'm just thinking about. I wonder if people come up to 
Ken and Robin and say, like, when are you going to write this thing up that you talked about five years ago? Uh, there's too much. It's it, there's too much. See, those guys actually put stuff out though, <laughs> and they act, and so. they actually put stuff out regularly because they yeah. it's their job. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm gonna work on it. You know, I I need to be better about like actually. Yeah, we don't pay rent on the studio. That's like that's that's one of the nice things about squatting in someone else's other space. That's right. But yeah, it 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 will come. It will come. Good things will yeah. come with time. And I I I'm I'm happy to. Oh uh, yeah, you have plenty of unknown armies projects. That you're yeah, actually working on that you are tapped out on. Look, I yeah, I got some, I got some Delta Green shit I'm working on right now. I do intend to sort of shift back to Unknown Armies when I'm done with my fairly large Delta Green project. So mm-hmm. fair enough, that's good. I do appreciate the kick in the butt um, about the Gatekeeper archetype because I do have notes. It was a good one. Put that together. There's also a bit of an extrapolation here. I'd also like them to address the various ways people become adepts. For example, I don't really understand how they That's do it another question. That's another question, I think. That's a separate question, but you know what? I, I, I like the hustle. Let's attribute that first one first. That comes oh, yeah. from Matthew. So, on to the next question. Well, this is something I, I don't want to dwell on because this is something I've been thinking about. I want to do an episode on trigger events, how people become um, adepts, how adept schools form. Uh, oh begins, yeah, how, things like that. Because I mean, thir- I've noticed this, and this is something I've run into a couple times. Thirty doesn't have really good rules for getting new identities during a game. Yeah, I kind of get that because um, I know how often, and this is sort of a bullshit excuse, admittedly, but like, how often do you get a new cornerstone to your sense of a person, right? But yeah, but in this in, this in these game, sort of stressful circumstances, adepts. it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, you're, gonna be, like, you're, you're usually going to be having a very eventful time of your life. Yes, yes. There are rules for it, but God, I've never actually used them. I mean, I, I had one character who uh, she learned magic by talking to a demon-possessed skull. And that's pretty much how it goes usually with these sort of things. Like, um, if you've... Um, okay, yeah, the here problem we go. is... New identities. Uh, a character can get a new identity if the group makes it a local objective to help them do so. That's... Pff, fuck no. that. <laughs> fuck that, indeed. New identities start at 15% unless they were gifts of magic, which vary greatly depending on the source. Because Yeah, the GM can give it to you. Sure. Okay, thanks, Greg. We know. <laughs> I liked the old way of doing it. I think it was the old way of doing it, where you can, get, you can become a... An adept, if you hit five failed notches in one of the meters, I always liked that. Um, I used that in a campaign uh, where character hit their uh, final uh, failed notch at a climactic moment and they became an adept. I like that. It gives you a good excuse, especially if you wanted to like, I'm like, you're like, I want to be an adept, but I'm not starting as one. But you know what? I'll put these like failed notches that I start with. I'll, I'll put them all in one thing because I'm aiming to become an adept. That at least gives like some kind of like rule structure almost that you could like yeah. use. But having that codified would be helpful. I agree. I mean, I like the whole thing with adepts in third and second edition, where it's like, okay, you need to have this many hardened notches and whatnot. I, at the very least, think an adept should require a minimum of like five hardened notches in a natural. Yeah. Sure, that makes sense to yeah. me. Maybe. I don't think so. I, I very much like the first second edition spin on adepts, where they're just kind of inherently tweaked. 
and third yeah. edition seems to have moved away from that a bit. I like the fact that they have to be hardened because it's representative of that, of the sort of an, uh, earlier concept of adepts. I see that. I see that. I don't think it should be the only way. I have an argument for, like, adepts who are not necessarily super hardened to the unnatural. I think it's overly convoluted in second edition. I don't remember the rules off the top of my head, but I remember them being, like, pretty too much in terms of, like, the number of steps you need to go through to become an adept. Yeah, fair enough. I do like the idea where it's like a prereq of like, okay, you need to have five unnatural hundred notches in this. You need to mm. be kind of used to this shit. Mm. And f- frequently in the process of learning adept magic, which I do think should be difficult. Yeah, it should sure. be time consuming. Uh, you That's when you build up those hard notches because you're like, oh shit, magic is real. <laughs> why, does my, why, why does my adept mentor keep hitting me? <laughs> But yeah, no, I think that's, that that could be a full episode just on like that. I think there's enough depth in there in terms of... You could develop some rules for like learning magic that involves the uh, taking notches, whether hardened or failed, from a uh, like a tutor, like a teacher um, who's teaching you a specific magic school. Um, but also have rules for like... Because there's rules for making your own magic school. And it's and they they do it like oh it's a local objective to make your own magic school no 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 I think it should be something that you work on by yourself weirdly it's not a group activity to become an adept I mean I guess here's how I do it right of and this is getting a bit complex so bear with me when you're becoming mm-hmm. an adept you go through some arduous process either by yourself or with the help of someone else uh, you accrue at least five unnatural harder notches well you hit mm-hmm. at least five unnatural harder notches and you accrue, let's say, five harder notches spread between if you are learning from a tutor, mm. self and violence, oh, and if you're learning by yourself, hitting. self and isolation. Uh-huh. I think it would depend. Like sometimes it would, it would depend on what magic school you're learning as well. I think the themes of it would in might may influence like what uh notches you're getting like if it's a if it's a school like uh, persona mancy can you negative reinforcement your way into being a wizard yeah sure can like you can you someone be adept hood into you oh that's a good that's a good question um i'll waterboard this magic into you uh, maybe <laughs> probably not the best way because you'll you're... stop drowning when you learn how to freeze this with your mind i think it might be an aspect or it might be uh harder to do because the person is not giving their consent and that would be a huge part of it like i don't think it needs to be, be super granular i think the way she was adept should have like a hardened notch minimum right and if they want to become an adept during play they need to hit that minimum. Mm. So let's say the you need to have at least 15 hard notches to be an adept, and at least five of those have to be unnatural. But then how, how do you explain all these people starting campaigns like, I'm an adept, but I've only got three points. In, I've only got three hard notches. There's no... There's no they're, 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 they're lame and wrong, and they're but cowards. That, that, then you're saying that, okay, if you've got... If you're making an adept, you have to have at least five harder notches or an explanation why you don't. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. This is just me spitballing ideas. But I, I, fundamentally, I do think adepts should have, like, some sort of hardened requirement. I think it should be hardened or failed. Okay, sure, that works too. I mean, 
the amount of hardened notches you have during character creation determines the number of failed notches you have. Yeah, sure. But you can say, but you can say, I've got a whole bunch of hardened notches in all across this, but I've got all my failed in our natural say. Okay. Anyway, we will talk about it. We will do an episode on this because it's a it's a it's an important topic. Uh, that the people demand. Do you think for. Avatar should have any requirements? And I'd say no because you have unconscious avatars. Yeah, you just you just follow the path. That's why it's called a path. How should so? All right. The adepts are the one who are like not even not even taking the path well tr- less trodden. They're like walking out into the woods, climbing trees and bullshit. Yeah. Uh, so playing, we playing have an music. idea on how one becomes an adept during the span of a campaign. How does one become an avatar during the span of a campaign? Play the part and then spend your experience points that you get i don't know yeah there's no rules for that is there and no specific rules well we'll talk about that as well fuck yeah next we have the avatar underground which is mentioned in two e's adjacent the adept underground uh what's social scene like for avatars on the down low well like most subcultures that are on the down low there's a lot of amyl nitrate use (laughs) yeah sure i think it would it would be interesting, low-level avatars how they, of like the same or different uh, paths, how they interact with each other, whether they recognize each other, whether they're more or less likely to recognize. Like, if you're a low-level mother, do you recognize a low-level warrior? I think you should have a sense. Probably. Probably. Was it, I thought there was something, there should have was something like avatar sense in the rules or something. Yeah, but that's anyone can have that, and that like gives you a sense of all avatars. I guess. No, but I thought it was something like avatars specifically got a sense of avatars maybe. of the same type as they were. I think that they should have a they maybe not that a huge amount of information, but you should be able to tell that someone is walking an avatar path if you're an avatar. You're like mm. of that same path at least, right? Like game recognizes game, right? Maybe, yeah. I, I'd even I'd even allow them to like get a sense of like you think he's something like you. But not a, but walking a different path, sort of thing, on a good roll. Sure, sure. Uh, if after, no, maybe not, not immediately. Like I think, like there's various like avatar senses that you can see avatars and what they are. If a player specifically asked me, they're like, "Oh, is this guy an avatar?" I would let them roll, and if they got success, I'd give them an answer. Um, yeah, maybe. But they need to ask me that question themselves. You know, it's not just be like, "Oh, you're in the presence of this other avatar." Therefore, you roll to see if you notice they're an avatar. Well, no, if I wanted to give them that information, I'd say, like, you get a sense. That's fair. Uh, you get a, there's something about them that seems familiar. Um, you, you don't, like, you've never met them before, but... Well, but the question here is, what is the social scene like? I mean, I'd imagine it's a bit less grungy than the sort of adept slash occult underground by virtue of just... It's easier for an avatar to hold down a job than an adept. Yeah, depending on the avatar path. I, I don't mean this yeah. is like a character judgment. It's just charging tends to not dovetail well with working a nine to five. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or at least not going to get many charges. It depends on your job, though. Some, depends some on your school. jobs do. Some jobs do grant the opportunity, and all the other adepts consider those the people who take those jobs to have sold the fuck out. We talked about this a bit with the uh, the whole, the idea of the, the the naked goddesses brunch, and my idea was that avatars who they're on the same path. They'll have get-togethers. They'll have get-togethers because they can act out of character in front of each other, and it doesn't affect their because they they're, they're all avatars. They don't have to play the role. 
it to society because they're all avatars. This is not in the books or anything. Yeah. This is just something I like because it makes sense that like, okay, so we can take the masks off around each other. Um, I mean, there's a bit, it depends on the avatar. Like in the, the case of the naked goddess, absolutely. It's a mask off moment. Yeah. But when, you know, we were talking about like all sorts of avatar get togethers, competitions, whatever. In the case of like the warrior, it's a tournament. That's that's mask. That mask is still fully on, right? Because they're fighting each other. Yeah, but that's well. I'm thinking from a different way of doing it. Like, okay, the warriors uh-huh. get together and just have a peaceful time because they fight all. They're always fighting because, like, we're talking about it coming from a, the swap meet. The swap meet is where the merchants come together to be merchants, and it's public facing. It depends. It depends if they've hit that 90th percentile or not, right? Yeah, sure. Well, because then, then you then you're entering like competitive territory. When if yes, you're exactly. a, a couple of merchants or a couple of warriors or whatever, and you're like middling down in the forties, you're not necessarily going to be like at each other's throats because there's no point. No, you're absolutely correct there. So as a social scene, as we're kind of talking about, it probably very much clustered on the basis of like different kinds of avatars. Mm. Different avatars are excluding like the higher tiers are more a lot more likely to get along with each other. Or different people channeling the same avatar path are a lot more likely to get along with each other, excluding like the highest levels, than adepts of the same kind. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it would make sense for like the more stricter sort of schools um, in terms of your behavior to get together to like hang loose like the naked goddess brunch. Like, if you get a whole bunch of fools together behind closed doors and <laughs> discuss philosophy or whatever, um, yeah. or it depends. Then, yeah, but it's going to be relatively civil, depending on the avatar, of course, right? Like, you know, the massless man isn't going to be hanging out with a bunch of his massless man buddies. There's also the question of how do conscious avatars feel about unconscious avatars? Like, what's the rules there? Like, are you, like, meant to, like, in, like tell them what they really are? Or do you not... Or is that thing like, okay, this could be another competitor, but not... Or maybe some school, certain certain paths, like, are better trod unconsciously. So telling them that what the deal is is seen as a dick move. It could be interesting, like, because we talked about, like, avatars of a feather flocking together in various ways. But you could also have groups which are like... Um, well, we 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 we're like the tarot. We're the tarot gang. We've got everyone. We've yes. got like one of these. I'd imagine the um, sort of polite thing to do when you're talking an avatar that recognizes another avatar, conscious or not. You aren't supposed to tell them outright, but you're supposed to try to kind of politely get a sense for if they know or not, and if they don't know. You're kind of expected to help them figure it out discreetly. You know, it's... I'd imagine for, like, an avatar, if someone just... A lot of times, if someone just tells you that they're an avatar, then that can fuck up the path. Yeah, that's it. Um, You need to help them figure out where they're walking. But you aren't supposed to outright tell them what direction they're headed. Sure, sure. Because it's like someone who is, like, not... They're not overthinking it. They're just like acting naturally, and they're and like there are going to be natural avatars, like people who naturally end up falling into an archetype's sort of path if they start overthinking it. They start like you start opening their mind of like, oh, there's all this other crazy shit going on, and magic and mayhem, and all this easy way to knock someone off the path because then they get distracted and they end up joining some cabal with a bunch of ad- adepts who want to do some other stuff and then it gets confusing. But I'd imagine the Avatar Underground has a certain degree of sportsmanship. Yeah. 
To an extent. And that's a big fucking asterisk next to to an extent. Because once you hit, like, the 90s, that's kind of when all bets are off. And he's powerful enough we can just start competing with, outright competing with him now. Well, there's one interesting thing about avatars versus adepts is that avatars, in a very fundamental sense, are working with the system. They're working with the invisible clergy while adepts are not. Um, well, and- the other thing is adepts, to a certain extent... Like, they're compatible with a live or and let live mindset. It's like, all right, this guy disagrees with me. Fuck him, he's wrong, but whatever. Right? Yeah. I care enough about this that I don't really want to spend time with them, but, you know, what the fuck ever, fine. Uh, I just yeah. won't be around them. Avatars, at a certain point, you have to start competing. Right? Yeah. It's at a certain point, even if you're channeling it unconsciously, once you hit those high ranks, then, like, if there, I get the sense there's too many avatars at a certain point. It starts kind of weakening. Sure. Kind of starts dragging the rest down a little bit. Because it can't be easy. Yeah, because it becomes less distinct. Yeah, it becomes less distinct. There's a certain amount of zero-sumness built into avatarhood that isn't there in adepthood. If there is one person who is like an avatar of the merchant, you're going to like get a real a sense of him, a sense of that archetype coming from him or her. But if you're hanging out with a bunch of merchants for a weekend, you're going to start to slowly like dis- like discern between them. Oh, this one's like this, this one's like this. Like they're yeah. all separate individual yeah. people, which weakens all of them because in terms of their avatar path, because they are following a, their role. And if they're seen as something more specific than their role, they lose they they lose power. I, and you know, there, there's more acceptance when you have someone that legitimately is like, "Listen, I don't want to. I'm not gunning for Godwalker. I don't give a shit. I'm fine with being yeah. here with my two channels. That's right. It's whatever. But magic's also kind of addictive, right? It's like, oh, I can yeah. do this much now. Imagine what I could do with even more. That's true. That's true. It's the uh, one idea I had, which I'm not going to dwell on too much, but I've been sort of um, chewing on it, is having like doing a campaign which is like just avatars versus adepts. Like have that be sure. like the the main division in the occult underground, where the avatars they're that's the man, that's 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 the government, and the adepts are the criminals, sort of thing. Kind of. Uh, that could be interesting. There's an extent to which says that's true, but also you can be both at the same time. That's it. Well, in, in the in the uh, the campsite and sitting as 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 uh, presented, it's it's not like that. It's a bit of a mix. But you could easily okay. have a world where it's like there's a clear distinction and they don't like each other, uh, which I think is then what happens when one of the player characters is an avatar and an adept, or they're just ah. like, nope, sorry, that that doesn't work for this sort of get, this campaign. Well, then it's like, okay, well, okay, you could go the way it's like, well, you want to be a werewolf and a vampire? Fuck you. Or you could go, okay, you are a werewolf and a vampire, and that's a big problem for you. Um, it means you have no friends at all. Um, yeah, that could work fine. All right. That one was from Karen Malady. And then next we have the Greg's Spored Conspiracy. Well, I mean, it's a means of distributing charges like any other. This is coming from the context of we've been working on various uh, books related to my special orders sort of mini 
fan-made setting for a while of which now. I released for a while one now. and I want to release more but it'll, it'll come when it comes and we have been talking about discussing um, and developing different sort of like okay this fast food chain is this this fast food chain is this Greg's is a British fast food chain take it along with this that one of them has been one of the frameworks has been rendered slightly obsolete <laughs> look look we, we forget that forget that we move on it didn't happen in the unknown obvious universe all right, all right, and it's only one of the lines. I don't care. I, it'll come. It'll be back. It'll be back. Damn it! <laughs> this takes place in an alternate universe where, where they still have uh, stack carts on those je- on that Japanese train route. That's right. As for Greg's, I don't know what to do with Greg's. This is the thing. Um, Greg's is a British. Chain. I know. Like they, they, they're, they're a bakery. bakery they're a bakery chain, right? Famous for their sausage rolls, and in most interestingly. Well, no, I don't know. Most interestingly, is that uh, apparently their vegan sausage roll is better than their normal sausage roll, and this is said by like, right. not like people who aren't vegans, but it, it's it's uh, it's a thing that, be, that their vegan sausage rolls are pretty great. Um, the interesting thing about sausage rolls in terms of a delivery system for special orders is that the original um, right of lesser correspondence involved a cylinder. Instead of, uh, you know, you blew rosemary through a cylinder. That's true. It's true. Um, the Greggs usually, in, they're usually attached to gas stations or nearby them too, right? Uh, no, they're near petrol stations. <laughs> I, I apologize. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> they're next to petrol stations. Where, where you can buy a, a beverage uh, served in a nice shiny... Some uh, crisps can, uh, and buy some crisps. Yes, <laughs> you go in. You go in the bathroom, and you go and get your hand of glory, and then you get your spotted dick. <laughs> I, I, if you're getting spotted dick there, I think you should try a different bathroom. <laughs> All right, you do know the spotted dick is a dish. I'm well aware, but it's <laughs> funnier if I think that it isn't. God damn it! I don't know. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll think on Greg's. I, I could see there being some cool stuff with the special orders that are specifically, like, even more connected with, like, gas stations than, like, McDonald's already is. Because uh, mm-hmm. that was, like, the whole thing with using Maccas was, you know, mm-hmm. it's connected to the interstate highway system. Obviously, Greg's is just a front for the British crown, right? Oh, yeah. They're, 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 they're just a front for the royals. And... The Royals wanted to get in on this, uh, so they made their own special order conspiracy. Wow, that's pretty obvious. It's too obvious. Too obvious. So we have to dig deeper into to weird British stuff for that. Yeah, I don't really know what to do with uh, Greg's sports, but I also don't know enough about Greg's. There is an eight-part documentary series called Greg's More Than Meets the Pie. Uh, which was broadcast on Sky One in 2013. We'll do. A I've heard that eight, as seven... Mormon meets the pie, and I was hoping we'd get a wonderful crossover episode in here for a moment. But that would be great. That would Bless. be great. Mormon Gregs. Um, yeah, fuck, fuck it being the British Royals. It's a Mormon conspiracy. Yeah, why not? Uh, the British Mormons. Uh, they're up to. They're up to business. I will say that the UK does need more UA content. It's it's honestly pretty tapped for it, and what we have for it isn't the best. Well, there's some there's been out there's stuff out there. Um, it yeah, it doesn't. Well, more. I mean, bloody specifically. Uh, we don't talk about bloody. Um, 
<laughs> Let's move on. Um, and that this one was from Cleomancer, and I will we will talk about this this Greg Spore conspiracy and try to expand upon it. The next one, yeah, we'll we'll do a Spore conspiracy update at some point. We're admittedly kind of due for it. Next is compare second and third edition unknown armies. That uh, mm. th- that's its own episode. That is definitely its own episode. It's one we want to do for a while, but there's no way it can really cover that to the degree that it's warranted in the span of like 10 minutes. One idea we had was to have like a, a great defender of second and a great proponent of third come on and just and just have a that's debate. That's good. I do, do, who do we know that's like big second edition enjoyer? Um, well, I think the person who gave this question, I don't know, Mer- Christopheles is, is, is big in. It's true, but, I, I mean, hey, if he wants to come on, feel free to P- PM us. <laughs> there are a few people that sell that, are, because second and third editions are so different. Um, it's true. In many it's, ways. It's very true. And people were playing, like, Unknown Armies from way back in the day. No, there's still people that are like, I prefer second edition. Who do we know that's like that? That's the thing. What we could do first off is to we could like sort of together go on the like the deep dive into the mechanical differences. I really need to brush up on how the second ed mechanics work. It's been a long time. I still definitely I still remember the broad strokes, but there's a lot of fiddly bullshit in that system. As is pretty typical for RPGs during that period. But people like it for a reason. People yeah. stick with it for a reason. Well, sure, and it, it has a lot of stuff that's now considered very I don't want to say revolutionary. Like, it didn't invent the custom skills. That was a over-the-edge thing. But it still did use them. Uh, I think it was the first to include flip-flopping. Okay. In, like, a game. Sure. Though I, I'm sure that was used in someone's, like, RuneQuest house rules going all the yeah. way back to, like, the fucking 80s. Sure. I mean, it seems obvious, but maybe it wasn't. I mean, things aren't necessarily obvious. I suspect obvious. it was. It's just, hey, switch those two dice. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was. Just flip those around. Um, yeah. It can be kind of hard to trace the lineage of certain role-playing game mechanics, to be honest. My issue with this, and even though I do want to talk about it, it will be interesting, is that it takes me longer to get my brain into like mechanical mode, into crunchy mode, uh, than it does... I, I am a naturally fluffy fluffy boy. Um, and, and crunch, I, I, my hand waves, like, uh, reflexively when I see crunch, I'll be like, eh. <laughs> I'm by no means a fucking rules lawyer or anything, but, you know, I, I'm a fucking math rules. guy. It's, it's my job, it's what I went yeah. to school for, it's, it's just kind of how I'm wired. Yeah. It's something that, like, I just can't really ignore. I look at a dice mechanic and I start basically seeing the probability distributions in my head. Mm, mm. So that's useful. That's useful stuff to have. I admittedly, like, I know, it's weird, because people, like, when talking about role-playing games, always, like, one of the first things they mention is the core dice mechanic, and it's like, that is a very small part of a game's identity to me. Mm. If, if I want to run a fucking high fantasy game, I'm not thinking, like, oh, well, I want to run a high fantasy game, and I need mm. to make sure it's a D8 dice pool system. It's like, no... What's out there that has, like, resources that they can use readily? What has, like, a nice tone? What has fun to read source books? That sort of shit. So it's not something I ignore. It's just not something I, like, consciously give a shit about very much. As long as it's not, like, actively broken. (laughs) That's useful. It'll take me a while to see that. This is a good, like, 
the question extrapolated extrapolated talks yeah. about uh, what benefits could each addition take from the other, and how would they need to be modified? That's an interesting point. Like, can you can we create a an addition two point five that satisfies everyone? Probably not. Probably not the latter part. I think we kind of agree that we prefer the third edition rules, but the second edition tone. Mm, yeah. Look, it's been a while since I played a second edition game or ran. A I've I've ran like two uh, second edition one shots. I have vastly less experience with it, but like you know, you get that sense of tone from reading the source books, right? And the tone of the source yeah. books for first and second edition versus third edition are pretty fucking different. There's good arguments for elements of the tone in well the t- it's about tone not necessarily content because there's good content in third edition i mean yes but like content reflects tone yeah true content um, is the examples given for tone you can say this game is about like fucked up dark fantasy role playing and whatever but then if there's like a, a bunch of silly shit that like feels in congress for that then that's gonna be the fucking you know, it, it's like Fatal, right? You can Fatal claims to be like this dark fantasy realistic role playing game, but you can accidentally end up fucking someone in the ass. That, <laughs> whoops! Um... It happens to the best of us, my friend. But it's you know, it, it's not really something I associate with the dark fantasy genre. All the anal sex I see in fantasy is usually intentional, at least in Game of Thrones and whatnot. Mm. That's the thing with like. When I run under armies, I do have a tendency to it gets silly because it's silly as fun and more interesting. You're silly like, until the point conclusion. where it's like, oh, this is this is actually kind of real and there's some definite pathos here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, I, I run it serious. I, I I take what's serious serious. I guess at the table, the GM always needs to be the straight man. Like you can make something where you think as you're writing it, hey, this is pretty silly and funny. But at the table, you yeah. played entirely straight. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that. That you don't want. Yeah. If you're if you've got something silly like some crazy wacky Benigans, you run it straight. If you can't even take your own ideas seriously, then why the fuck should the players? Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of the time, like, well, that's the thing. What silly is relative, um, anyway. But what I mean is, like, if I was to run like a sort of grim and gritty second ed style, on an army's game. I don't know how it would be. I might, it, it might end up being more grim than it needs to be because I end up going in the other direction. I'm like, all right, <laughs> we're going to get bloody as possible. But I don't know. I don't know. The tone thing is interesting. I, to a certain degree, it's it, it's enforced semi-consciously. I know, just knowing your sensibilities, that's something you're particularly interested in running? Something like gritty and kind of takes itself seriously? Well, I think there are way... I... I, I feel attracted to it sometimes like i talk about how i like I, this is in other games too like sometimes i think about like man i want to run like a really serious and and like cool like delta green game but yeah. i always run like ridiculous well yeah and then the shit you run is like this vaccine uh the for the deep one gene definitely gives you autism we don't talk about that <laughs> it was a joke damn it autism is the least of what that <laughs> vaccine gives you that's right. <laughs> yeah, but then, there's, then again, but when I ran that game, um, it was serious, like especially. In well, the a lot first of that's under the control of was... the players too, and admittedly, you can talk about that during that's the game. You can be like, "Listen, I kind of want this game to be a bit more serious," but even then, jokes are going to come up. 
Well, the fact is, like, there was silliness, but, like, the situation they were put in was just... It naturally made them, like, uncomfortable in a good way, in the way it was meant to be. I also think the way you write things tends to be kind of uh, lighthearted, I guess, is the way I'd put it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's true. Like, you're like me. One of the best ways to motivate yourself to keep writing is if you're making yourself laugh. That's it, yeah. But I'll be, like, a lot of the times I'll I'll be, like, thinking about, like, the themes that I'm writing about are fucked up and dark and, like, disturbing. But, yeah, to write them, it's, I, when I write them, it ends up being pretty light. But you write in, like, a very black comedy fashion. Yeah, that's it. Your scenario writing, you're writing in general, I'd say, but especially for Delta Green, reminds me of, like, David Wong's work. Oh, <laughs> that's good. I like David Wong's all right. David Wong's pretty good. I've only actually read one of his books. Well, it's like, objectively, this is fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it's also written in a very sort of breezy, uh, yeah. breezy fashion. It's sometimes hard for me to read like things that are like too... Not, I, I read it, but it's like, if it's too self-serious, I don't take it seriously. I don't know. It's something about, I don't know. It depends on who's writing it and how they're writing it. It's a question of how much can it earn it. Like, I can take something serious... Like, a lot of stuff tries to take itself very seriously in a way it's like, I can't take this fucking seriously. This is ridiculous. It's also very different when we're talking about a role-playing game. The the relationship between the audience and the sort of creative lead is very close. Mm. And then on top of that, the audience has a lot of control over the creative direction as well. Yeah. You know, if you want to run a super serious game and your players are not interested in that, your game is not going to be super serious. No, it's not. You'd have to, like, get that that buy-in early. And explain what you mean by it as well. And yeah. also allow for um, breaks from it, I think. Um, even in like a super self-serious like Delta Green game, like there's going to be moments that are like blackly comic or absurd or like... Uh, sure. Like the scene where like they're doing stupid shit in the hotel room or whatever. And that that is the sort of thing you can where you have that sort of balance because if something's just super self serious all the way through Well that that exists in most media too, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. Breaking bad is like a very harrowing crime drama, but there's a lot of goofy shit in there. There's, there's a lot so of moments of levity. Have... Yes. And you need that. You'd like to yeah. have a good to make a good recipe you have to balance the flavors and if it's too well you are going to get invested in characters if they're just dour all the fucking time that's it if you're hanging out with someone and they're just uh you know taking everything fucking seriously you're gonna think they're fucking annoying and not no fun whereas you know someone that is usually goofy and like he's they're fun to hang out with but you know not infrequently real shit comes up with them then you're more invested in their emotional Mm -hmm. well-being you're more invested in how they fucking yeah, feel. For sure. And and with this, even the, the whole genre itself, like talking like your unknown armies, your Delta Greens and things like that, even the like the source material in terms of conspiracy and occult and all that, there is so much nonsense. It's like like yeah. goofiness in there. It's it has to be part of it. It has to you have to incorporate it to one extent or another. Yeah, some of our friends in the DG community are like, what you feel is Unknown Armies versus Delta Green is just the fun stuff goes in Unknown Armies. And it's like, no, not really. (laughs) The original Delta Green books have some goofy shit in there. Read the Karatekia right up. You can tell that Glancy was having some yucks while he was reading that, while he was writing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
and like that, the adventure we end up on Groth, <laughs> on Groth. Um, yeah, I, I think I need to have that balance, and I sometimes I don't feel it. The difference for me is like whenever the supernatural comes up in Delta Green, it has to be something impactful. Pretty much, yeah. it has to be something that like yeah. sticks with you. Whereas you can be a bit more flippant with it in unknown armies. And just that change have have big knock on effects. Huge effects. Yeah, absolutely. Because once he's like badger becomes too common and too easy in Delta Green or a similar game, then he's like, well, why don't you play unknown armies? Just the fact that you can get hardened to the unnatural in this game changes the dynamic vastly. Yes, absolutely. And you can still have fun, but you can still have fun with your, your cosmic horror. Yeah, it's it's you just you just have to lean into. Yeah, the absurdity. There's so many fucking cosmic horror comedies out there. David Wong's work. And, like, a lot of... Honestly, I'd say, like, most of the best Lovecraft... Direct Lovecraft adaptations to film are horror comedies. Those being... I mean... Herbert West Reanimator and From Beyond. There's, like, horror and comedy. Horror and humor are bedfellows, even though, yes. like, lots of horror comedies aren't... There's, like, lots of bad horror comedies out there which fail at both. But when they succeed at both, they're amazing because they're all about uh, recognition and inciting inciting emotion and the unexpected. They're about tension and release. Horror and comedy are both about the building of tension and then the release. Yes, the three natural uh, allies, uh, horror, comedy, and erotica. Yes. Tension and release. And this is why From Beyond is Stuart Gordon's best film. Because it mixes all three. That's right. Well, Lovecraft himself was all about the tension. It's true. And about as little sex as possible. Hey, his wife, his ex-wife said he was a perfectly adequate lover. It's true. It's tr- well, it, Thompson, it's in his name, right? It's true. That's a good point. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we've got off the rails a bit. A little bit. Uh, we, hey, more, more fodder for next year's potpourri. Um, that's right. So that was from um, Christopheles, as we mentioned before. Uh, the next question, yep. the next topic given is Ascension Battles Deep Dive. How do you use passive aggression to outmartyr the martyr? Uh, yeah, that would be a good episode. That's an interesting idea. Like, let's like talk about Ascension Battles, yeah. um, how big a deal they are, because they're meant to be a big, big deal. Uh, when they happen, they're not meant to happen all the time. Um, when they happen, they're an event. Yeah, yeah, as they should be. There's lots of. Uh... Did the freak ever technically ascend? I don't think so. At least as no. the mystic herm. So that leaves me wondering: what is the mystic herm slash sexual rebus avatar battle like? That's well. It really depends on your. Uh, it would. De- that's good internal contradiction. Diction, but like, well, this is my issue. This I have this theory about the uh, the sexual rebus uh-huh. that it's clear that the sexual rebus, the the sitting avatar, the sitting avatar of twenty years ago, was very much like tied in with like um, transgender themes and tropes and things like that. Yeah. But I'm wondering if that aspect is going to be is weakening in society because societal change. Because I've always thought like... More be becoming more... just the blending of gender presentation. The the lines have gone a bit blurrier. All right. 
That's well, there's, there's going to be like 30 years ago, you might, if you find a trans avatar, you're going to assume, oh, this is a mystic hermaphrodite. But now it's just like, well, this, as it probably always was, but now people's assumptions are going to be more like, okay, this is, this is an avatar of the whatever. Well, it probably trans. varies depending on how definite because the sort of lines between gender roles are at a given period. Like, if you're talking that's, the that's Torn it. era, that the mystic from hermaphrodite wasn't so much the figure associated with um, the blurring of gender roles. It would have been more something like the dandy. Yeah. That's Maybe. probably... I'd imagine that's an avatar that's a uh, archetype that has a decent amount of turnover. Because that, that, that shit's constantly changing. Yeah. And that's an issue that... Sexual Rebus could be its own episode in and of itself. And maybe we shouldn't have used this as an example. But anyway, um, when it comes to A Change of Battles Deep Dive, we could, like, that's, it's given as an example of, like, the big sort of cosmic level play is, like, when you're getting involved in God Walker battles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's something we don't talk about enough, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, frankly, I'd probably broaden that to, like, an episode on just high-level avatars in general. Of, like, you know, mm. what... What happens when you hit that, you start having to deal... Because, you know, there's competition going on before the outright Godwalker battle, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So talk about some That's of that. That's when it comes to a head. Maybe talk about how when you're Godwalker, some techniques for coming up with your own custom channels. Yes. Also, how those custom channels will reflect your interpretation of the past yes. and how that differs. There's material for this. The dynamics involved... In the the three way between the God Walker, the Challenger, and the Sitting Archetype, and how the Sitting Archetype can support the God Walker, existing God Walker, or they might support the Challenger, depending on what the social circumstances are. Because there are situations where a God Walker has an interpretation of an archetype that the Sitting Archetype does not like, but they're stuck with this God Walker until a Challenger comes along. Uh, and there's other times where a God Walker is perfectly in line and perfectly happy, and the sitting archetype is not worried about the God Walker. But then this challenger comes along who is interpreting things differently, but because the zeitgeist has shifted, like the power, even the power of the invisible clergy isn't necessarily going to keep that God Walker yeah, in, yeah. His, in his or her spot. Uh, and that's cool, interesting stuff. Yeah, no, there, there's plenty of material for an episode there. We do not have the time to cover that now. Uh, and that was no, from that Flightless Bird. Thank you, Flightless Bird. So next we have James Elroy. How his writing influenced on in armies, how his mother's murder, possibly Black Dahlia related, influences writing, and how Black Dahlia affected America. So I'm going to... I have a confession here. I haven't actually really read any James Elroy. No, I, no, I, have, I haven't either. We'll do it. We'll, we'll read it and we'll do an episode on it. Because I think we, we've discussed it. There, there, there's a few very foundational authors... And creative figures to unknown armies that we really should do like whole episodes on. Tim Powers probably being at the top of that list because he's like the single biggest one. I remember like in the original like document we had for the podcast. I'm pretty sure James Elroy. We'll do an episode on him when we when we actually read the books. And you know what? We should do it. We I should agree. do it. I got the idea that James Elroy was an influence on other armies from something that John Tynes and Greg Stolze wrote themselves on, like, this little Word document from, like, 98 of, like, hey, here's kind of the media that we were really pointing to when we made this. And James Elroy was on there. Mm. And I think that just because mm. he was, like, sort of the big noir novelist of the 90s, of the late 90s, 
especially really bring in a lot of that sleaze mm. into the genre, which was always there, mostly under the surface, but not infrequently spilling out mm. into the open. But James Elmore really doubled down on that, is my understanding. Mm. But yeah, well, he, that- he was like the big noir author of the 90s, so... It's not surprising that oh. that was an influence. Though, I mean, the the most experience I've had with his work is I saw the fucking L.A. Confidential movie. Oh, yeah? It was fine. You know, good acting. It was well made. <laughs> it, I, I kind of categorize yeah. it the same way I do, like, those other sort of 90s prestige pictures, like American Beauty from that, like, same mm. period, like, late 90s prestige pictures. Was like, this is way, very well made and basically soulless. Apparently, James Elroy didn't like Alec Hovindachal either. So I'm not surprised. Uh, he I'm called it a, a turkey of the highest form, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> uh, James Elroy looks very intense, um, and he may have to go into the icon. Apparently, he puts on like this uh, sort of kind of persona of like this hardline conservative, Mm-mm. but like. His ex-wife has been interviewed, and she's like, "Yeah, no, that's all bullshit. That's that's a that's an effect that he puts on because it's a fun character, and it helps helps himself." Yeah, uh, Stephen Colbert all over again. Yeah, but more like more like grimy, you know. That, that, that sort of yeah. like that sort of tabloid conservative. You know what I mean? All right, grimy conservative. That's 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 good. I will read these books. Yeah, I should read I'll some of his as well. I mean, you know. Then, then, admittedly, it's probably going to come after we do the Tim Powers and David Lynch episodes eventually. Because those are uh, yeah, sure. a bit more foundational and require us to do less additional reading. I do like reading, but reading what I should read, that's... that's. And that was by Justin Mylund. Not Miland. Mylund. He's, he included corrections I for that. Miland. The thing is, okay, it's Myland, but it's that's how the highborn pronounce. Well, it. no, it sounds like you're kind of you're you're putting the emphasis on the L, whereas the emphasis is on the 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 Y, the My My Myland, not Myland. Uh, well, if because the highborn pronounce it Myland and the lowborn pronounce it Myland, but it is just in Myland. But yes, good topic, and we will get to it. So next. Review all of Melon's one-shots in one episode and pick a favorite. Oh, God damn it, another Melon letter game? Oh, no, wait, this is Kate. Okay. Yeah, never mind, this is fair game. Um, My goddamn <laughs> fucking pro-social Kate Cargill being in here. Like, I'll support my friend. <laughs> uh, we should. He has a lot of content and we should go over it. Um, his one-shots have to be very idiosyncratic, where there's, like, a lot of, you know, pre-gens and whatnot. I've played in some of his stuff and really enjoyed the experience. Yeah, they're all, you get, you, scenarios are good. Yeah. God, how many has he done? I think he's done like eight or something. Or like a longer one shot. So he did a couple for the contest, but he didn't, didn't even run those. This, and he also didn't officially publish any of his scenarios. Probably keep it positive. Of course we'll keep it positive, goddammit. Well, no, I'm trying to think uh, of like, okay, how, like, because he has like several scenarios that are like, you know, 30, 40 fucking page scenarios. They're big. And then there's the 1,500 word ones. Yeah. That. Yep. I, I'm getting my opinion on those. These are very cool. I wish there was more to them because it's not really enough for me to run. Well, but no, having read it, like, that, that's not an issue with Melon. That was an issue with the format. I've read Melon's other scenarios. There's generally more than enough for me to run shit with that. Yeah. Yeah, we should at some point. Um, I know. I, I always, I, I feel weird just being like, hey, here's this episode on our friend. He makes good stuff. Read it. 
But it, you know it's, what? It's why free. not? Though? It's free, so why the hell it's not? Fine. It's free stuff. Even if it was paid, I'd do it. Be like, yeah, it's it's give Melon well, money. Fair. We have we have Nepto called give Greg Stolze your money. We gonna have one called give Melon Bread your give Melon and, Bread your page. And that wasn't. That wasn't even for Unknown Army's material. No, it wasn't. We, so, I mean, to be fair, when he actually did like an Unknown Army's fucking short story collection, we didn't do an episode on that. So I think it yeah. balances out. Yeah, it's true. We should. We well, yeah, we had other stuff on our minds. We could we could just have one of those episodes where it's like, hey, it's it's a Kate and Melon episode. Sure, <laughs> we can talk about Melon scenarios. Give us a break, and we can enjoy listening to it because that would be an interesting dynamic. I think uh, huh. we haven't had that. See, I can see this going. I mean, I I, th- I would like to do one where we like legitimately like review Melon scenarios. Yeah, because they're good, and I want them to have more attention brought to them. Yeah, he's like that, that's the thing. He's like just he's kind of off and like to the side. They're just like working on his own stuff. You like release oh, yeah. it to the couple of discords, and he's just like, "All right, time to work on next thing." It's like, dude, this is good shit. Like, put it out more. Yeah, I understand that this game doesn't have like a wide fan base, but at least put it on like the subreddit or the fucking Facebook group or something. I think he, I sort of underestimates like how much uh, he could do it as a career, but he probably has his own shit that's making more money. Yeah, but. He could make money off it yes. without that much. I'm maybe not like, unknown armies uh, just because of you know how 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 niche this game is. But if he was like, sure, I mean, it's been kind of shitty because his two big games have been Delta Green, where the devs adamantly refuse to let you make money for them, make money yep. on fan material, and yep. fucking unknown armies, which has a tiny tiny fan base. But I think he does also underestimate like because his prolificness. Yeah, like if like he could, it could like, definitely bring he, in a, it could definitely bring in some supplementary income at least. I wouldn't be surprised if Melon's one of those guys that's like, I don't really want to do this for money. It will take some of the joy out of it. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, I, maybe I do get the sense that he wants more eyes on his work. So yeah. there's a lot of it. Skew's very good. Yes, that's the thing, and it it it. it my issue is like like it's it's. If he was making money off it, there'd be more incentive to market it to more people. And I think there should be more eyes on it because I think there's lots of people who would like his stuff. But I, Everyone don't. likes being told that their art is good. For, uh, you know, how many fan fiction writers are constantly soliciting for comments and feedback and shit, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, just it's, it's seeing that action. view counter go up, even if it doesn't actually bring you extra cash in your pocket, is gratifying in and of itself. You know what's more valuable than cash? Dopamine. <laughs> Look, the cash is just for survival and dopamine anyway. So, validation, validation's forever. That's right. This is this is we've got a double shot of talk about melon scenarios, so we'll yeah. do it, damn it. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do it. I'm not sure when, but probably sooner rather than later. Yep. And last one. The so, last the this last one. is <laughs> the Whisper War. Um, who who the fuck knows what happened during the Whisper War, bro? Well, uh, we Monica could, Barbary, like, maybe. Yeah, uh, she won't tell you what really happened. No. Um, I would like to. We can talk. We can do a whole episode on the Whisper War because there's another. Oh, easily, easily. We can do. We can do several episodes each on a different Whisper War. 
oh yeah, but let, let's just cover the Whisper War as like one crazy big event that happened in 2003. Yeah. It was confusing. A whole bunch of things could have happened. There's enough. There's um the material wasn't huge about the Whisper War, but what has been suggested and what is like mentioned is enough that we can spin off into different angles. Yes. To different um, tangents. Uh, Are you talking historical one shots or campaigns? There's a good one. Set in the middle hey. of the fucking Whisper War. Sure. We could talk about, yeah, we talk about how to run a game in the Whisper War. Uh, again, as a period piece, early 2000s period piece. Um, I mean, just imagine a campaign where, like, there's all this Cleomantic shit making things unstable in the background sounds very interesting. Yes. Different ways to interpret the Whisper War, how big it was. Uh, I have my interpretation, my, my explanation of um, the Whisper War, or a little bit of. Uh, in my fanon in right, I had um, Monica Barbary using a major charge to um, basically confuse people's memories of the Whisper War because the Whisper War was a serious big thing. Like it looked like domestic terrorism. It looked it was big enough that like the president was going to talk about it, and Monica Barbary made that go away. Well, then there's a the question of you know how much was that localized to the United States? How much of that actually affected, like, people outside of large urban centers or in large urban centers versus, like, gas stations in the middle of interstate intersections? Well, I, I, sort, of ha- I sort of assumed that the Whisper War spilled over because the sleepers were involved and TNR was involved and enough groups that had international scope were involved. The Tour de Saint Germain was pretty much only in the United States, right? Uh, probably. They were probably um, scions elsewhere, maybe in Australia, maybe in yeah. Europe. Anywhere there's, like, militia movement presence. Yeah. But that's always been, like, a mostly United States thing. That would be an interesting, like, although, like, running a militia movement that's trying to pull off, like, they were going after Mac attacks, and if they had, like, the thing of, like, we're going to go after them, but they're international, we need some we need some friends. So, like, going and making contact with, like, like-minded people in around the world to like bring together this to like playing as the global liberation society and trying to bring together like it's sort of similar to how like that whole um the whole fascists getting on together the nationalist international sort of thing which is it's funny and in and ironic and fucked up but also like amusing to think about how difficult it is to get that shit together um that could be fun to play with I agree. Yeah, no, there's t- there's definitely stuff you can do with that framework, and it's basically like a big, vague smudge that you can scroll in however you want. It's this, you know, yeah. there's the Unknown Army's timeline, and there's this part that's like about a year long that just fogged up. And then, yeah. you know, you can take your picky figure out and then draw whatever you want in the fogged up area. And you can play with it, you can get some real, you can get real crazy with it. You could have some, like, if the Cleomancers were involved, some big Cleomancy was going on, you could be like, actually, it was a 10-year period. Um, but it's been like wiped. It's been like like the what, what they did with the the Middle Ages. They just squashed it down. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining some like Whisper War guy that kind of remembers like. So imagine 9/11, but crossed with Groundhog Day. <laughs> oh no! I'm Groundhog Day on 9/11. No, um, that's a one shot if I've ever heard one. We were chewing on that problem for a while of how to just stop this shit from happening. We got it eventually, but. It, yeah, I'll fucking know. The, the, those tally marks, after a while, those tally marks you carve into your arm just uh, start healing over. 
Uh, yeah, sure. No, because it's a, like it's a Groundhog Day. You wake up yeah. in bed wherever you were. Uh, yeah, like I, I think Harold Ramis said that his theory was like that Bill Murray was in the Groundhog Day loop for like twenty years or something. Mm. Oh, there's, there's this theory that he was in there for like ten thousand years due to the time it would take to learn certain sure. skills. Well, yeah, he, he's because he's paying has to pay off his karmic debt. Oh, sure, that makes sense. Um, but like he could play the piano amazingly. He could do all these like random like he, he'd learned all these skills that take time. What I, I watched that movie with my wife because she wanted to watch something that wasn't fucked up and weird for once so we watched um, that, that um, I, 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 I'm not surprised it's a problem that you have with your wife when trying to find something to watch <laughs> sure um, but we watched what was this Andy Sandberg one where he was they were in repeat Palm Springs that's it uh, where it was a similar sort of it was a Groundhog Day situation right. uh, but he's like in there for like 20,000 years or whatever because like it's like he he knew too many things they don't state it outright but, I mean, that, that yeah. could be fun where it's like you lean on the Groundhog Day thing and he has like the end of the second act is him hitting the normal Groundhog Day moment of like okay he's gone through his character development he is yeah. uh he, he's a better human being and will be able to uh, no longer be such an asshole. But that's not enough karmic debt. So, like, yeah. the la- the third act is him just achieving enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. Go a solid, just a full Buddhist read on Groundhog Day. That would be a great, um, yeah, twist on it. What was interesting about Palm Springs was one of the major plot points, or the, 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 the premise of it was that he could bring other people in, that he could get other people trapped in the time loop, which changes the dynamic That, that changes a lot. The, the dynamic significantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that would be the... Like, if, you got to, if you're in a time loop, a time loop scenario, I know Melon's complained about them, but I think time loops work if you've got things very planned out on what happens in the day and you've got, like, a limited sort of geographical area. I think the big thing with time loops is you need, like, you know, you're doing that whole... Beat by beat, here's what happens. But you need to give at least a decent amount of write-ups for like, okay, what happens when players interfere with this event, right? Yeah. Because a lot of that kind of scenario doesn't really do that. They're just like, okay, here's what happens. And then, oh, what happens when players interfere with it? Yeah, just wing it. And that's because if you start thinking about that and start writing it down... You're gonna end up riding yourself down a very deep hole that goes to just fractally convert. <laughs> That's any fucking scenario theory. That's any writing project theoretically. You can always add more shit to something. It's just a question of scoping properly. You just need to decide before you start writing what's the fucking scope of this. And if it's only a 24 hour period, there's only really so much you can do. But once you start getting into like, okay, how does this event, well, if you change this event in this way, like here are three different things they could do. Or actually they might do this. I'll add a fourth thing. Well, how does this changing this event affect this other event that they changed? Oh shit. Uh, and it becomes, it, it, it branches this is very stuff quickly. That, this is stuff that you hone in on on playtesting. It's stuff you hone in on by having someone who isn't you run the scenario. Sure. Sure. Which is the solution to pretty much any sort of scenario writing issue. Run it yourself. Try have someone else try to run it. Yeah, that makes sense. Fundamentally, a scenario is a tool for ideally a complete stranger to run a cool game using your ideas. And to accomplish mm. that, you know, you need to be writing for someone that isn't yourself. You need to be writing for a complete stranger who has no means of contacting you whatsoever, and they can read your scenario and be like, "Oh yeah, I I, I know how I can run this. I know what to do here, here, and here." 
actually, I just noticed something about as I was about to close. I was about to close the tab about this movie I saw. Um, one of the writers, or well, the screenwriter, Andy Ciara, was was also a writer on Lodge Forty Nine, which is another that thing explains we could talk a about lot. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's the mailbag. Um, that was a good haul, I think. It was. Um, opening up sort of submissions uh, to see what people want us to talk about is good uh, because we have some like uh, a stronger direction for this year as opposed to us like uh, with the last two years we talk about like two years ago we talked about like we should do an episode on two powers so I haven't done it Um, but this is solid uh, because we have uh, this is what the public wants this is what our um, huge fan base is demanding all hundred of them yes They're, they're, they're the blessed century some of these we were thinking about, some of these we were half thinking about, and I think now we have a good push to actually develop. I gotta tell you something. Yeah. I gotta tell you something. I deny the world as it is. And I heard some people talking in the restaurant downstairs. I had to go downstairs to get my scissors out for lunch. And I was, I had planned to tune in on the radio President Roosevelt's address about the war in Europe. Right. And au contraire, the president, someone was saying, is a guy named Obama, and there's a war in Afghanistan. Right. Like my mother telling me that World War II had ended three years before my birth, I'm not buying it. Because as far as I'm concerned, FDR's the man. Still the president. He's still the president. Right.